It's the 10th of December 1988, near Bluefish Point on the northern side of North Head, Sydney, New South Wales. The body of Scott Johnson is found at the base of a cliff. An inquest rules his death as suicide. But was it murder? Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So tonight I will go over the death of Scott Russell Johnson and the three inquests that follows. That's right, three inquests that have followed his death. So... Who was Scott Johnson? Scott was born on the 27th of November 1961 in Los Angeles to Grant and Barbara Johnson. He had an older sister Terry and an older brother Stephen. They were all separated by about two years in age. The family moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1970 and soon after Grant and Barbara separated. Barbara took the kids back to California and Grant visited occasionally early on, but it would be much later in life when he initiated contact again. Stephen described the divorce as confusing rather than distressing. In California, they were poor and lived in what was described as a ghetto until about 1974, when Barbara got an office job at a chemical company and a steady boyfriend named Dennis. Being in hard times, Stephen recalled that this helped bond the children together. Once Stephen went to college, Dennis moved in and married Barbara. Stephen and Scott did not like the macho Dennis, and he treated Scott harshly, as Scott was not particularly sports-minded. At this time, Scott became interested in hiking and would get Stephen to go on hikes with him. Scott was only 14 when he started hiking and over the next three or four years they would hike all over Southern California. In one of the marathon hikes, they hiked the Grand Canyon from rim to rim, the distance of about 50 miles or 80 kilometres. In school, Scott excelled in mathematics and his teachers would advance him in his studies, and eventually he was doing college mathematics, even though he was a freshman in high school. That was even too easy for him. So even though Scott didn't like sports so much, he was fit, active, loved hiking, and was a maths genius. After school, Scott was accepted into the California Institute of Technology. Stephen and Scott taught themselves computer programming and spent a lot of time together. Around 1983, Scott went to Cambridge University in English for a year as part of a tripos. At the University of Cambridge, a tripos is any of the undergraduate examinations that qualify an undergraduate for a bachelor's degree or the courses taken by an undergraduate to prepare. He then studied at the University in California in Berkeley. In 1985, Scott obtained a scholarship to undertake a PhD in mathematics 
at the Australian National University. By the time of his death, Scott had solved two major mathematical problems and had completed enough of a third problem to to suffice for a PhD. In fact, Scott was awarded a posthumous PhD in 1995. Scott had several jobs related to his field of studies as maths tutor, research assistant and systems analyst. Scott worked as a technical aide at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory between 1980 and 1983 and as a systems analyst at Broderick Co. for three months in 1983 as well. In 1984, Scott was employed as a teacher's assistant at the University of California. At the end of 1985 until April 1986, Scott worked as a research assistant at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. For most of 1987, he worked as a mathematics tutor at the Australian, at Australian National University. In January 1984, Scott met Michael Noon, an Australian music PhD student at Cambridge University, and they commenced a relationship. Later that year, he travelled back to the US and informed his brother Stephen of the relationship. On the 5th of September 1985, Scott travelled to the UK to live with Michael Noon in Cambridge. At the end of December 1985, Mr Noon returned to Australia to take up a position as lecturer and head of the Department of Musicology at the Canberra School of Music. Scott returned to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he stayed with his brother Stephen and worked as a research assistant. Scott then moved to Australia on a student visa on the 4th of May 1986 to undertake his PhD in mathematics at the Australian National University. He lived with Michael Noon in the Australian Capital Territory, or ACT. Now that's where the capital city of Australia is for some reason, at a place called Canberra. I don't know why it's not Sydney, but hey. I didn't get to choose it. Boom, fuckalunga. Anyway, let's get back to it. Scott was an excellent student who was making outstanding progress. Scott solved two major problems and had prepared papers on them. The first of those papers had been accepted for publication. Scott had also begun work on a third problem. According to Associate Professor Ross Street, Scott had solved enough of the third problem to satisfy the requirements of his PhD, which, as I mentioned before, would be awarded after his death. Professor Street had informed Scott of this on several occasions, including during his last telephone conversation with Scott on Thursday, the 8th of September, 1988. According to Michael Noon, Scott would often go on long hikes around Sydney. Michael Noon's mother, Patricia Noon, said Scott used to run a lot and would run in the mornings. Scott applied for permanent residency in 1987, based on his relationship with Michael Noon. On the 14th of June 1988, 
Scott received advice from the Department of Immigration that he would be considered eligible for permanent residency if a genuine and continuous relationship between Scott and Michael persisted as at the 10th of March 1989. So, Scott was fair dinkum about staying in Australia with his partner, but as I will tell you, not everything was monogamous. There were occasions when Scott engaged in sex outside of his relationship with Michael Noon. Not all of it was known by Michael, who said that after Scott Scott had gone and had sex with others, he would suffer from depression and remorse. Enter Michael Allen. He and Scott had an affair over a two or three week period about six months before Scott's death. Michael Noon was unaware of this affair. Alan said he and Scott practiced safe sex and met irregularly for short periods for only a few hours at a time. Alan described Scott as a very optimistic fellow. He had a very, very bright future ahead of him. I can't for the life of me begin to see how or why he would commit suicide in such a strange manner. Michael Allen referring to the initial inquest report that Scott committed suicide. Now, in the inquest, there is a reference to a previous suicide attempt by Scott when he was in San Francisco. Now, whether this was in a letter and Michael Noon then called Scott or it was in a phone call is not 100% known for sure. But from the looks of it, Scott sent Michael a letter and then Michael called him back. Michael Noon told how Scott told him that he had unsuccessfully attempted suicide by trying to jump from an area at or close to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco because he was concerned that he had contracted HIV and was distressed by the consequences for himself and their relationship. Michael Noon said he would never forget the words that Scott said. I tried to do away with myself. The substance of the call from Scott was as follows. And this is from Michael Noon. It would be impossible for me to give you the exact words. It was a long conversation. And he related to me that he had had some kind of sexual adventure with somebody. He he was convinced that he had either contracted AIDS or exposed himself to the virus and that he was deeply remorseful and he decided to do away with himself by jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. But when he got there, he found that his muscles froze over, that he was simply not capable of carrying it out, physically incapable of carrying out this intent. Now, this is important, as at the time of his previous attempt to kill himself, Scott thought he had contracted HIV and this distressed him to such a huge extent. Even so, he was unable to go through with it. At the time of his death, he was not under such stress at all. So, you could conclude, that the previous attempt had no bearing on his mental state at the time of his death as to whether he was suicidal at all or was capable of committing suicide. In fact, it gives weight to the fact 
that he probably was not suicidal at the time. So remember, the first inquest gave a finding that he committed suicide by jumping over the cliff. So, he did not actually attempt suicide at the Golden Gate Bridge. He merely thought about doing it. In the days leading up to the death of Scott, there was no evidence that Scott was in a bad way. In fact, he was quite happy and had discussed future plans with Michael Noon and had spent fun times at a beach nearby. On Monday, the 5th of December, Mr Noon set out from Lane Cove at about 9am to drive to Canberra. But he had to pick up a copy of his birth certificate from the Registry of Births, Deaths and Marriages along the way, which he needed for his interview for the Harkness Fellowship. He realised he had Scott's wallet in the car and returned at about 4pm where he briefly spoke to Scott and his sister Marguerite. He then drove on to Canberra and this would be the last time Michael Noon would see Scott alive. At about 2pm on Tuesday the 6th of December, Marguerite spoke with Scott at the Lane Cove house. She and Scott appeared to be in happy spirits and had in fact he had in fact in- initiated the conversation. That was the last occasion on which she spoke with Scott. On Wednesday, the 7th of December at 2pm, Scott saw Associate Professor Street in a hallway at Macquarie University. He was somewhat surprised to see Scott as he had left a message on the answering service at Scott's home in Canberra to the effect that the seminar was not going ahead that week. Scott told him that the message had been communicated but that he wanted to see him anyway to discuss his work. Associate Professor Street was unable to speak with Scott at the time and so Scott indicated that he would contact Associate Professor Street to arrange an appointment soon. Stephen, Scott's brother, says that following Scott's death, he found in Scott's desk at the Lane Cove house a copy of a receipt from an ATM, which is an automated telemachine for anyone who's not sure, and that was located at 121 King Street, Sydney, which recorded a withdrawal of $50 from Scott's bank account, which had been processed at about 3.55pm on the 7th of December. Marguerite heard Scott return to the Lane Cove house at about 11pm on the 7th of December, but they did not speak. It is not known where Scott went between withdrawing the $50 from the ATM at 3.55pm and returning to Lane Cove at around 11pm. At 6.30am on Thursday the 8th of December, Marguerite saw Scott's feet in his bed through the bedroom door, but she assumed he was asleep and did not go in. That is the last known sighting of Scott alive. When she returned home at about 3.15pm, Marguerite saw that Scott's bedroom was neat and tidy, as it always was when he would return to Canberra.
At about 10.30am on Thursday, the 8th of December, Associate Professor Street received a telephone call from Scott seeking to make an appointment to see him. According to Associate Professor Street, Scott told him that he had found a way of simplifying his further major mathematics problem and he appeared to be very happy about it. They discussed the possibility of meeting either that afternoon or the next day. But Associate Professor Street was not available. They agreed it could wait until the following Wednesday, the 14th of December. During that call, Scott also told Associate Professor Street that he intended to spend Christmas with the Noon family at Lane Cove. In addition to speaking of his plans to spend Christmas with the Noon family, Scott spoke of looking forward to becoming an uncle. Paul Bailey had a brief telephone conversation with Scott sometime between midday and 2pm on the 8th of December 1988. Scott appeared to be his normal self during the telephone conversation and he did not detect anything untoward. Scott may or may not have told Paul that he was planning to go to the beach today. Now that is the last known contact anyone had with Scott. So there is a pretty detailed run-up to the death of Scott. He seemed to be happy and was not only planning events in the near future, but he was also looking forward to the distant future. Now, on the morning of Saturday the 10th of December 1988, Brian Butson set out with Paul Patterson and Mr Patterson's then 13-year-old son Stephen to go spearfishing at Bluefish Point. As they approached the vicinity of Bluefish Point, Stephen saw Scott's body and pointed it out to his father and Mr. Butson. Mr. Butson remained at the location while Paul and Stephen Patterson returned to Manly to contact the police, who later attended the location and recovered the body. And although this is the 10th of December 1988, it would be found that Scott actually perished on the 8th of December 1988. Now you can see this area on Google Maps and it was often accessed after um, parking your car at the car park at Shelley Beach where you would walk up a track and come to a huge stone wall. This wall had a hole in it to get to the other side and it was this area onwards towards Bluefish Point that was regarded as the Gay Beat. There were many tracks in amongst the scrub and there were more secluded areas off smaller tracks that led out to the cliff top where you could have sex in a more private situation. Now a few people gave evidence at the inquest in regards to the gay beat there and what went on. Most people were naked or wore speedos, commonly known as budgie smugglers or dick stickers. Some men would meet up, they would strip naked, fold their clothes and have sex. They also told of incidents where, in inverted commas, poofter bashes would descend upon the area. These scumbags would enter the area via the north end and the beat users would yell out bashes, bashes to warn the others to beware. 
the bashers would get the first one or two people they came upon and the others would run away. Many assaults took place, although not a lot were reported to police. Detective Senior Constable Crookshank, Crookshank gave evidence at the first inquest that if a particular area is frequented by homosexuals, we have those in the community who take a dislike to those persons and will frequent there either to assault them or rob them or cause them some harm in some way and eventually the police become notified of certain types of incidents happening in the area. She stated that no such incidents had been reported to the police in respect of the Blue Fish Point area. However, there is evidence that there was a reluctance on the part of the gay community to report instances of violence at gay beats to police. Any area where gay people were known to frequent was a target location for prejudice-related violence and emphasised gay beats as a major trouble spot in this regard. Now, the coroner found that even though there was no direct evidence that the Blue Point area had no reported incidents of violence, that does not mean it didn't happen. And from witness reports, he found that violence did in fact occur there. So the area where Scott's body was found was a gay beat and there had been violent incidents at that site over many, many years. Now, I want to at this stage go over the police report at the scene. So Brian Butson and two police officers, Constable Robert Ludlow and Troy Hardy, made their way to the top of the cliff above where Scott's body had been found. Butson, remember, he was the guy who found the body, he, well, with his friend and their son. He said that while he was at the cliff face above the location where Scott's body had been discovered, he looked at the ground and saw there were sharp rocks everywhere that would be very uncomfortable in bare feet. There was no blood or anything like that. It had been washed clean with a lot of rain the night before and he could not see any scuffle marks or anything like that. Mr. Butson also said that he walked right to the edge and looked down at the body and he, could, he said he could have dropped a plumb bob down to it. It was a straight drop with nothing between the precipice and the body. Constable Ludlow stated that Scott's clothes were found neatly folded some 10 metres back from the top of the cliff. Now, they were not photographed in situ and no forensic examination of the area where they were found was conducted. Constable Ludlow picked up the clothes and subsequently handed them to Constable Hardy who took them to another location which was possibly the car park where they were laid out and photographed by an officer from the crime scene section. Accordingly, the only photograph of the clothes in situ were taken from a helicopter and do not show any detail other than their position. Now, this was a bit of a fuck-up by the cops. So, Scott's wallet was not located at the scene or at the Lane Cove house and has never been found. 
So there was little or no evidence to be found as the heavy rain, as heavy rain had washed anything of use away. And don't forget, this was nearly 30 years ago and police procedures have, thank God, come a long way since. An autopsy of Scott on the morning of the 14th of December 1988 that concluded that Scott died as a result of multiple injuries. A sample of Scott's blood was tested for HIV and hepatitis B. The result for both was negative. A blood alcohol level of 0.005 grams per 100 mil or 0.005% was found. This is equally consistent with having been caused by post-mortem changes or the consumption of a small amount of alcohol prior to death. The observable injuries were equally consistent with Scott having been pushed, tripped or fallen or having intentionally jumped from the cliff. Dr. Duflo, the forensic pathologist, accepted that the injury sustained as a result of the fall may have masked any pre-existing injuries sustained prior to the fall and also that some of the signs of bruising may potentially have been washed out by heavy rain. Dr. Duflo also gave evidence that in over 30 years of working as a forensic pathologist, he has not experienced in any other matter involving a person who had committed suicide by jumping from a cliff while naked. Now, that's, this is a very crucial point because the first inquest finds that Scott committed suicide. Dr. Alan Carla, forensic pathologist, provided a report to Strike Force McNamere in April 2014 following a review by him of a number of photographs of the scene, Dr. Duflo's original autopsy report and the transcript of Dr. Duflo's evidence at the first inquest. Dr. Carla's con- conclusion was that the position of Scott's body at the base of the cliff does not allow for any conclusions to be drawn as to the circumstances of his death other than the fact of his injuries being consistent with having been sustained from a fall from height. Now, this is, this is the crux of this problem. There's no forensic evidence that can be directly related to Scott having been pushed or attacked. Anyway, let's go on. Dr. Carla considered that all of the injuries could be explained by a heavy fall from a great height, And while it's possible to cherry-pick some of the injuries and say that a particular injury might have been caused by an assault, forensic pathologists usually look at the entire case to gain an impression by looking at the overall pattern of injuries rather than looking at one in isolation. Dr. Carla conceded that he could not exclude the possibility that Scott may have been dazed by being struck on the back of his head and then pushed or rolled over the edge of the cliff, which would be consistent with the position of the body at the base of the cliff. So at this point, there's just little evidence to show either way if Scott committed suicide or was murdered. But 
let's look at what's called a psychological autopsy. There were two done, and one was commissioned by Scott's family. In Dr. Rosalinda Robertson's report, dated 15th of May 2017, so this is quite recent, Dr. Robertson did not consider that Scott displayed any indications of premeditation or intention to take his own life, but rather he had made future plans. In the absence of premeditation, Dr. Robertson considered the issue of impulsive suicide. In this respect, Dr. Robertson stated, There is a general agreement that Scott went to Bluefish Point of his own accord and took off his own clothes for the intention of casual sex. Assuming this is the case, then it is my opinion that whatever occurred whilst he was at this location was the triggering event that ultimately led to his demise. We know from research that an impulsive suicide can be triggered should a traumatic event occur and the means be available. As such, should he have been sufficiently distressed due to whatever happened at the location, it remains a possibility that Scott may have taken his own life. However, as the triggering event remains unknown, the possibility that it resulted in Scott's demise due to accident or homicide also remains an equally plausible possibility. Now, in Professor Large's report, dated the 9th of June 2017, he records his view that no plausible account account of why Scott might have suicided has emerged. In relation to the possibility of Scott's death arising from suicide, Professor Large concluded, as a consequence of my knowledge and research into jumping and knowledge and research into suicide ideation, I have no confidence that Scott died by suicide. I put less weight on his naked state but think that naked suicide in a public place by a non-mentally ill, non-drug-affected person can only be considered to be an extraordinarily rare event, even for suicide. Now, both Dr. Rosalinda Robertson and Professor Large did go into a lot more detail about what they thought, and they didn't agree on all points. Basically, they considered that suicide could not be eliminated as a a possibility, but they were not prepared to say it was a high possibility. So looking at the committing suicide naked, well, basically, it looks like if you don't have a mental illness or you're not on drugs, it just doesn't happen. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the gay bashings in the area around the time Scott died. In fact, there were bashings for quite a period of time before and after he died. Police were able to identify two main groups that were suspected of gay bashings at the time of Scott's death, and although they were in two groups, they did not they they did know each other. As most of them were juveniles at the time, the coroner's report does not reference them with their names, rather they're referenced via code names. There's also quite a bit of redacted content there. 
So I'm not going to go into too much detail about the evidence they gave at the coroner's hearing. I would like to say that certain persons of interest were known to have mentioned bashing, and I quote, an American faggot. However, the person who is alleged to have said this has denied he did say it, as you would, but what I will say is that there were gay hate crimes perpetrated in the area by gangs or groups of mates, and so this has to be taken quite seriously in regards to the death of Scott. Now, in Scott's case, there's not enough evidence to show that he was attacked and stumbled off the cliff, if he was thrown off the cliff, if he fell by accident, or if he jumped and committed suicide. So, I will now go over the analysis of the coroner's findings. Now, this is, of course, from the third coronial inquest. The coroner found, and he says, Regrettably, those responsible for the initial investigation quickly jumped to conclusions without thoroughly and impartially examining all of the facts. So, the police jumped to conclusions that it was a suicide without really looking at any other reason. Okay, The coroner did say, though, by the time the numerous mistakes that led to that conclusion were recognised, the chance to properly test the evidence to find the truth had greatly diminished. So, by the time the police did have another look at Scott's death, it was just too late to get any proper evidence. Now, he did say in respect to the family, the commitment of the Johnson family to ensuring that the circumstances of Scott's death were exhaustively examined is laudable. Their belief that not all relevant information had been put before the previous inquest has been vindicated. Now, this sounds just like the Levisons, a strong family not willing to give up in seeking justice for a lost loved one. You really, really have to hand it to some people when under enormous pressure, they stand rock solid and will not stop until something is done. As I said before, there are only a few possibilities in regards to what happened to Scott. He may have accidentally fallen from the clifftop. The second possibility is that he deliberately jumped from the clifftop with the intention, the intention of ending his life. The third option is that Scott was confronted by a person or persons who either used force to propel him over the cliff edge or who assaulted him or threatened him that in an effort to escape, he ran from them and accidentally fell over the cliff. So, let's have a look at the first option that he accidentally fell over the edge. The coroner found the cliff top was not obscured by bushes or anything that would have concealed the sheer drop. From where Scott must have been standing when he placed his folded clothes on the ground some 10 metres back from the edge, he could not have failed to have been alerted to the danger it posed. As detailed in the summary of evidence, Scott was physically fit and experienced hiker and mountain climber. Clearly, he was not scared of heights, but nor was he a person who took unnecessary risks with his personal safety. On the ground between Scott's clothes and the cliff edge 
were scattered sharp stones that would have made walking in bare feet very uncomfortable. If Scott had approached the edge of the cliff after he had removed his shoes, it is likely he would have done so very slowly. Having regard to all of the evidence, I think it very unlikely that Scott would have accidentally tripped or stumbled over the cliff or stepped over it not being aware of the drop. So far as can be established, Scott had none of the characteristics usually associated with suicide. He was not suffering from mental illness and he was not affected by alcohol or drugs when he died. He had not experienced any traumatic or triggering events, the loss of a loved one, diagnosis of a terminal illness, or being charged with a criminal offence or anything like that. The last people who spoke to him that have come forward was his PhD supervisor, Associate Professor Street, and a friend of Mr Noon's, Mr Bailey. His academic supervisor described Scott as being in a positive frame of mind and future-focused. Mr Bailey described him as sounding completely normal. Both spoke to Scott on the day that I have concluded he died. From an objective perspective, his life was on track. He was in a committed, supportive relationship and he was achieving great success in his chosen field of mathematics. In their last conversation, his supervisor told him he had done enough to be awarded his doctorate and indeed that occurred posthumously. His partner gave evidence of a suicide-related incident some three years before when Scott feared he may have contracted AIDS at a time that that was a fatal condition for which there was no cure. It is clear that he had at least engaged in what is referred to as suicidal ideation and that it is likely that it went further. He formulated a plan and may have taken some steps towards implementing it by going to the location where he could carry it out. He did not attempt suicide. I conclude, this incident slightly increased the risk of completing suicide at another time where he again under existential stress. Scott's partner suggested that when he had sex outside of their relationship, Scott suffered remorse that made him depressed. It could be argued that he may have been affected in this way as a result of engaging in casual sexual activity at the beat where his clothes were found. Conversely, as detailed in the summary of the evidence, it is likely that Scott had an affair with another man that lasted some weeks, about six months before his death, and there is no evidence that this precipitated a decline in his mood that put him at a risk of self-destruction. Although Scott was described by some people as shy and introverted, I do not consider his personality increased his risk of suicide. The evidence shows that among people with whom he was comfortable, Scott was affable and communicative. He gave seminars to other postgraduate students and socialised with his and Mr Noon's friends. His last birthday was celebrated twice, by his Canberra friends on or near the anniversary of his birth and a week later by Sydney friends. He was not socially isolated. 
He had a difficult upbringing, but he had very close and loving relationship with his brother and his partner. It is very unusual for people to remove their clothes before taking their own lives. All the more so when the event is in a public place and the deceased is not mentally ill. Scott's very private nature strongly militates against him choosing to take action that would lead to him being found naked by strangers. No suicide note was found. The submission that I should conclude that one was written but blew away is most unpersuasive considering Scott put his other valuables inside his shoe. But little turns on that as notes are left in a minority of cases in any event. Having a regard to all of the evidence, I am of the view that it is very unlikely that Scott intentionally took his own life. Now, I turn to consider whether the evidence supports a finding of homicide. The evidence establishes that at the relevant time, there were gangs of men who habitually went to various locations around Sydney where they expected to find homosexual men with a view to assaulting them. It has been proven in other proceedings that some of these assaults resulted in the deaths of victims and in some of the assaults the victims were robbed. It has been proven in other proceedings that these gay-hate assaults occurred in the same area. It was well known amongst gay men and among some men who would engage in gay-hate crimes that the area where Scott's clothes were found was a gay beat. Some of the soldiers housed at an army barracks a short walk from the beat where Scott died engaged in gay-hate assaults. Users of the Bluefish Point beat report gay-hate assaults being committed there. There is evidence that men who have been convicted of assaulting and robbing gay men at other places also engaged in such despicable acts at the Bluefish Point beat. Scott's wallet was not found with his clothes or at Mr Noon's parents' house where he had been staying. His clothes were found neatly folded and undamaged, but it may well be that he was already naked when set upon, if that's what happened. What search was made of the immediate vicinity revealed no sign of a struggle, but that search was cursory and there had been two nights of rain by the time police came to the scene. As a result of considering all of the evidence, I conclude that it was very likely that gay-hate crimes were committed at the relevant location at around the time Scott died. So in conclusions, in this case, I readily conclude that homicide is more likely than either of the other two scenarios, accident or suicide. It is likely that more than one person was involved. Scott was young and strong and fit. I've given careful consideration as to how confident I can be that two or more persons came upon Scott naked and engaged in such violent conduct towards him that he was either pushed over the cliff or fell trying to escape. The inadequacy of the original investigation the passage of time since the incident 
and the unreliability of many of the witnesses has made establishing the precise facts more difficult. Nonetheless, I am persuaded to the requisite standard that Scott died as a result of a gay hate attack. There is, however, insufficient reliable evidence to identify the perpetrators. So that's a change from the initial inquest, finding him committing suicide, the second inquest having an open finding, and then getting to the third inquest, where it's most probably Scott Johnson was murdered. So, we come to the recommendations. A prevention focus would require consideration of why numerous apparently otherwise normal young men would violently assault strangers solely on the basis of the victim's sexual orientation. It might be expected that any reasonable person would find such inhumane viciousness abhorrent. Yet surprisingly, it seems from the evidence in this case, a significant number of persons who were not engaged in these violent assaults were aware of the identity of the perpetrators of such crime and yet did nothing to prevent them continuing to occur by alerting the authorities. They're just a pack of assholes. You've got all the idiot thugs that are going around perpetrating it. You've got a stack of people watching, knowing these people who they are. They're not going to call the cops. He goes on to say, It's likely that further inquiries could be made into this matter but there's no basis for a high level of confidence that it would produce the outcome the families understandably seeks. So what we need are some of these scumbags that know what went on to dob their mates in. Get yourself a reward. Anyway, let's get to the findings. As a result of considering all of the documentary evidence and the oral evidence heard at the inquest, I'm able to confirm that the death occurred and make the following findings in relation to it. The identity of the deceased is Scott Russell Johnson. Date of death is the 8th of December 1988. The place of death. He died at the base of a cliff near Bluefish Point on the northern side of North Head, Sydney, New South Wales. Cause of death The death was caused by the combined effect of multiple injuries sustained in a fall from height. Manner of death. Mr. Johnson fell from the clifftop as a result of actual or threatened violence by unidentified persons who attacked him because they perceived him to be homosexual. At this point, the inquest was closed. So, Islanders, from the initial inquest being suicide, Scott's family now have been able to get the probable death of homicide. What I reckon was that the ringleaders of the gangs that went around committing these crimes, they were probably actually in denial of their own homosexuality. Most of these people are still alive and someone must know something. But it's always going to be hard to charge and convict anyone all these years later. To the scumbag or scumbags that did commit this crime, maybe you should do the right thing and hand yourself into police and confess. It must be shit 
looking over your shoulder every day, wondering if some little piece of evidence or a witness will come forward which will lead you to conviction. I'm sure a judge will be much more lenient on you if you hand yourself in rather than be dragged before the courts. And the police are still going to actively pursue this case, though there is a good chance someone, sometime, will knock on your door someday. Do the right thing. Give the family what they deserve. They may never get closure, as I'm not sure if anyone can when losing a loved one in such horrific circumstances, but at least they may get justice and be able to get on with their lives. There's always the karma bus. Now that may just stop one day and take you to fuckity fuckland. Now I'll just say that anyone who does know anything, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000. Now as the Levison family have fought for, there really should be a $1 million reward for all these sort of cases as to, you can bring about a conviction. This may bring forward people that know what went down that day and they may have even been a witness to the events. I really believe that a group of people went there, lured Scott into a situation, were going to rob and bash him, but someone took it too far and Scott ended up at the bottom of the cliff. Don't be a gutless shit all your life and come forward and convict whoever was involved in this murder. And this is a call out to the police to open a fresh investigation into this matter. With your pressure, we may just get some sort of justice for the friends and family of Scott Johnson. Now, in a few days' time... I will read out an open letter by Scott's brother, Steve Johnson, that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. So there you have it, Islanders. Another family not willing to give up. I really, really hope they end up getting full justice. Okay, let's get on to last week's meeting in Melbourne, which was fantastic, and thanks to everyone that turned up. It was great to meet Barney and Tara. They were just as wonderful and funny in real life as they are on the Bloody Murder podcast. I also got to meet Brod without his uh, without his balaclava on. He's uh, from Felon Podcast and he's such a great guy. Again, thanks to everyone that was there. And I'm sure next year we'll plan, plan another event a lot bigger. Now we've done it once. Now, I do need to talk about Patreon. They did do a backflip over fees, which is fantastic, but I am going to look at, into a better system next year anyway. I'll be posting out the November Patreon Awards this coming week as I've just been absolutely flat chat the last few weeks. Lisa, you're going to get your stickers probably in the new year. Sorry, with the Christmas mail and holidays and all that. A big shout out to all the existing Patreons and to the new ones. Margaret Salazar, Jody Peterson, Nikki Sanetti, X, Janine Manon, Tracy Davies, and Louis Butler. You can also buy stickers and beer koozies or donate via PayPal. Or beer koozies and stickers, they're lovingly posted out by me. 
The account is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and that's for donations or to pay for the koozies and sticker orders. Just email me whatever you want and I'll, I can give you the price back. So email cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I've also got the shop for t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and tote bags. Now you can access that from the merchandise link on my homepage, which is www.truecrimeisland.com. Or again, just send me an email. I'll send you a link. In January, I'll be finally replacing my dead PC with a new one to record the show on. And that's been possible from everyone that's donated to the island. I thank you so much. I can't wait to get this. I'll send you photos and all this sort of stuff with it all going once I get it up and running. Also, you can just show your support by sharing or reviewing the show. As you know, I am committed to being commercial free. So getting the word out there, just sharing and caring, that really helps the cause. Now, I do have one promo to run tonight. It's called Yours in Murder Podcast. Give it a listen as it is a great show. I will have more promos coming each week. If you do want to do a promo swap, just email me again, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Don't forget, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search True Crime Island. That's the key and join in. Finally, I'd love to wish all the listeners a Merry Christmas, festive season, whatever you call it, and a Happy New Year. So, that's all I have for tonight. I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island, and as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're the hosts of a new true crime podcast called Yours and Murder. We put out a new episode every week. We switch between covering true crime cases together and analyzing true crimes in our minisodes. We take turns on the minisodes, focusing on our unique perspectives. I have a degree in forensic science. And I have one in journalism. So we're able to go beyond Wikipedia and dive into the facts of the case. We look at the forensic evidence and the spin put on cases by the media. Check us out on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and like us on Facebook for an update on Today in True Crime History. As always, we are Yours in Murder.